I wondered if we could start at the beginning and, and just learn a little bit about both of your roots into music. So were you in a musical family? Did you take up singing as a kid or how did it work? No, no, no I was... Um, nobody sang in the family. Um, and I did sing. I don't know why or how, but... And uh, there used to be a competition in uh, the Saturday matinee, and I used to... And after we'd sung Land of Hope and Glory, which gives you a perspective of when it was, uh, they used to do a competition, and they'd go along and put their hand on top of you, uh, each person, and the children were supposed to clap, clap loudly or softly. Well, of course, they just cheered or booed. So, um, but I used to get up and sing, um, I'm a bow-legged chicken, I'm an up-kneed hen, the Tennessee Wigwalk. <laughs> Uh, which, which I learned from the Opies was apparently a big, big thing in the Lancashire, because I was in Blackpool at the time, in the Lancashire school, play, school, schoolyards. Apparently, for some reason, it took off. Anyway, I, I used to sing that, and I used to win. So it was no-brainer. I was a singer. You know? <laughs> right. and, uh, and that's mostly what and it happened. was all uphill from there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Peter? Did you take up the fiddle at a very early age? Uh, I had a dad who played the fiddle. But it was sort of that music hall thing until later in years when he got a bit involved with folk music, when I did. Um, had a mum who sang all the time, beautiful, beautiful voice. And uh, I think uh, my dad told me later in years that he, um, he used to sort of tease me with his violin, knowing that I wanted, I would do it. You know, it would sort of trap me into playing the violin, really. <laughs> I wanted to be a professional golfer. But, um, <laughs> but he, he diverted your attention, but with the fiddle. Yeah, and um, so I, uh, I play, actually I play mandolin first of all, and uh, I remember my dad and I, no I won't say that, I have to be careful what I say publicly now. Um, so I, uh, I had a music teacher at school when I was nearly 13, and I didn't like her, and she didn't like me. Uh, unlike the recorder teacher that I had, learning Descamp Recorder, and I played a tune called Lyndon Lee at the school concert, and she gave me a one-to-one -one lesson, and she wanted to sort my breathing out, and she was a beautiful woman, unlike the violin teacher. <laughs> and she said to me, I'm going to play this phrase, and I want you to uh, feel my breathing. So I was 12, and she was this beautiful woman, and she took my hand and she placed it sort of here. And um, I know that I should have been, should have been something about breathing, but it wasn't. There was something else going on. Uh, Mother Nature said hello. And um, that was that. But um, I used to fight with this violin teacher. One day she said to me, um, we were having this row, and of course she'd win because she was older than me and she wasn't a nice woman. Uh, but when you're nearly 13, you don't stand a chance, really. And she said, I put you in for a scholarship to go to the Royal Academy of Music. Uh, she said, and I tried to get the, the letter from the outray in the headmaster's office, but it had already gone. And I ended up going to the Royal Academy of Music. I, right. won, I won the scholarship. What, what age were you when you went there? 13. Right. And um, it's what they call a junior exhibitioner, so it's not a full-time thing. But I had a lovely professor called Maureen Flynn, and when I turned up, she said, I don't believe in associated board exams. They're a guide to nothing. They're meaningless. All we're going to do for the next three years is to play lovely music, and that's what we did. And that was my beginning, really, into... Um, I mean, I remember saying to, saying to Maddie 
one day, you know, you can get, go a long way on a good tone, you know. <laughs> and um, that's what that classical training taught me. It's um, a rich world of music, you know. And the and classical I'm... kept coming back, didn't it, with Steelite? Because we, we were talking earlier about Telemann's Canon. Well, uh, that's right. Up, which you used to multi-track. Yeah. That's yeah. right, yeah, I played it with a repeat machine. Do you enjoy it at the Royal Academy? Sort of. I sort of enjoyed it. Um, I, when I went for the audition, my, the working classes have a strange idea of what the, the sort of posh people are all about, you know. And I remember when I went for the audition, my dad tried to make me look posh, and he smeared my hair down with brill cream. <laughs> and um, I looked like little Hitler without the moustache, you know, and uh, all of that. No, of course, looking back on it, I mean, what an incredible, you know, fantastic thing to happen to me. But you're a 13-year-old developing witch. And, um, you know, it's, uh, there's other things going on in your life, you know, when you're approaching 16. Uh, Maddie, what about folk music coming in, into your life? Was there, was there a time when you became conscious of folk music and you started to really get into it? Well, I went to the local uh, folk club, but it was a very broad idea at first of, of folk. We were all... In St Albans, which was a very musical town, there was a lot of uh, music came out of it. But a lot of blues. We were all interested in blues. We all had Lead Belly and, and Big Bill Brunsey and uh, Lightning Hopkins, all those kind of records. All, all really interested in that. And then um, Joan Byers and Bob Dylan, we got in, into that as well. And then I, I started, I, I did a week in a wimpy bar for 10 quid and I did a gig on my own with a banjo for 8 quid. And I thought, I'll do this for a bit. So that was that. So, and then after, I've never made a decision since. And um, so I went uh, off of doing this, and I, to, to get round to the different clubs, I drove people around. I, I drove Reverend Gary Davis around for a, for a month, which was extremely interesting. Uh, but I also drove an American couple around who, who sang a lot of, they, they sang a lot of um, Sacred Heart music, which was one of the, which for some reason, the English folk world seems to absolutely love. And they, they do that, not only other American, but that. And uh, they said that uh, you should stop singing American because you are crap at it. Uh, not to mince their words. And I, and I was kind of a bit offended by this. Um, so I thought, well, I'll give it a whirl. So I sat, uh, so they gave me all these tapes that they'd got in nefarious styles, very largely from here. Um, and, I, and I played cassettes. There was cassettes I played on. And in fact, I'm not even sure they weren't tape reel to reel. Anyway. So I listened to this stuff, and it was like these old people singing, and I thought, God, this is boring. But I, but I was determined to not be thought a fool. So I kept at it, and, and gradually I sort of found, oh, that's, that, that's nice, oh, oh, I like that. And I got, I got my ear in, like you do with any music. If you listen to it for long enough, you'll, you'll kind of get it. I always say that, I'm not, I don't understand jazz really, but I always say if I was on a desert island for a month and I had nothing but jazz, I'd get it. You know, that's how it works, because you need to understand the vocabulary of each, of each style and genre. And so that was kind of... And then I met up with Tim, and he'd, Tim he Hart. was... Yeah, Tim Hart was already involved in, in that. And, and in, that's when you formed the duo. We, we sort of formed a duo. And, went, and then we came here and did some research and stuff and tried to find songs that other people weren't singing. And, and Peter, I think you fell amongst Irish music at a particular time. Yeah, I did, I did a lot of falling over with the, uh, with the Irish you, you, music. You, you discovered Irish music and Irish fiddle playing in particular, didn't you? Yes, I did. I left home as soon as I could 
and I lived in a flat in London with a lot of other chaps. And uh, I think the first, someone, someone played me an album. Uh, the first album I heard that was sort of a folky album was Rags, Reels and Airs, and that was uh, mm. Dave Swarbrick and Diz Disley. Um, and I, I hadn't heard anything like it. I thought, this is really, really good. And then someone played me uh, a Michael Coleman album, um, and I loved it. I absolutely loved Irish music. Um, He's an Irish, Irish fiddle player. Yes, yeah. absolutely, yeah. yeah. And uh, so I lived in, in London, in uh, Maida Vale. <laughs> but, uh, and, uh, and just down the road, there was um, a pub called Butty McGrath's Pub. And uh, two people used to play there. One was a fiddle player called Michael Gorman, and the other was a singer called Margaret Barry. And she played banjo with a thimble on her finger. And Wally, my friend who just turned up today, he lived in the flat then with me. Uh, and actually me with him because he paid the rent. And uh, <laughs> then I started going to the favourite in Holloway Road and there were other, uh, other pubs with the best Irish musicians who were in London at that time. And there were some fantastic musicians. And when I was with them, I felt Irish. And I got completely and absolutely caught up with the spirit of that music. Um, and and did it completely change the way you played violin? Oh, I was slowing records down and, and trying to learn the rolls and the, the, the licks, you know. And um, when I was on my own playing the music, something was missing for me. Playing with them, I felt Irish and I loved it. But... Uh, it didn't quite feel right for me to be doing that on my own. I now know why, which we'll probably, I'll probably tell you about a bit later when we hit some other subjects. When we get into the band, okay, <laughs> all right. So, so you're with Tim, yeah. and, uh, and as, as so often happens in these stories, Ashley Hutchings turns up, <laughs> um, and, uh, and he's putting a band together. Is that right? Is that how it happened? Did he approach yes, you and Tim? more or less. We lived in a house in, North, in Archway. Uh, we'd... Tim and I had taken over Tony Foxworthy's old, old uh, flat. And, um, it, and it, the house had sort of become a, 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 tra a place where people came and stayed because we're all different flats in, in the house. And, um, and I think uh, Trevor Crozier lived downstairs and he knew Sweeney's men. They were all friends. And Sweeney's men were staying there, but they were on the point of splitting up. It was all kind of complicated. But um, I think uh, Ashley and... Um, and Gay and Terry came for dinner, I think. This is Gay and Terry Woods. Yes, yeah. and, we, and they said, do you want to join a band? Well, everybody had been talking about being in a band because one of the things was you had to have access to a record company to give you money to buy gear because it was expensive. We hadn't got that sort of money. But we'd been working as a duo for a long time, so we wanted to sort of spread our wings a bit and work with other people. And we, so we said, well, we'll have a re rehearsal tomorrow and see how it goes, and we did. Uh, we, and we, we thought, oh, this will work, this is nice. And uh, we made the mistake of getting together in a house in, in Wiltshire. A friend of ours who lived in the house had got a house in Wiltshire. And so we, we did what everybody did, was we got it together in the country. Very bad idea. <laughs> right. Very bad idea. What, because you fell out with each other? Yeah, basically, because, <laughs> because we didn't know each other. And suddenly you were in a house together for a month, and it was really hard. 
And uh, two couples and a referee is not an easy kind of situation. <laughs> so, but you managed to make an album, didn't you? We and, did, and, and we were, I'm really pleased great... with that. And it was a great album, and it was really good to do. But, but then you split up. But Yeah, I, think it, it, I don't think we'd even finish recording, actually. But... Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> and, and Peter, was this when you came into the story? Uh, Just a bit later than that. Yeah, Bob Johnson and myself, we, he was one of the chaps that lived in the flat. Uh, Bob was quite passionate about folk music um, and had always thought of like, the, that whole electric folk music thing. I mean, he's quite an academic, Bob. And um, we started working in folk clubs and people were saying, oh, it's just another Carthy Swarbrick clone, you know, it was that sort of thing, you know. And then Martin Carthy started turning up everywhere. And what had happened, obviously, was that Steele and I split up because they were getting on so well and thought that wasn't right in life. <laughs> and uh, so Martin kept turning up to gigs. So obviously scouting for someone, and it was me. Yeah. And then Ashley phoned me up and said... And I'd heard of Steele Span. Um, I hadn't heard any of the music and whatever, but I'm a bloke in London on my own, you know, and all that. And uh, I said, yeah, I'll give it a whirl, you know. And then 40 years later, <laughs> I was... Um... Where did the name come from, Maddie? I know it's a famous story, yeah. but you, I wonder if you'd just tell it again, because some people might not know it. Well, it was uh, before... The, the, while the band was forming, um, Martin was uh, staying at the vicarage that Tim's dad, you know, where, where Tim's family lived. And, uh, and they were up late one night uh, having a drink or two and looking through, through songbooks, and, uh, and Hawkstow Grange came up. And Martin said, oh, that's a great name. That is, you know, a pity poor that see him suffer. Pity poor old Steel Ice Band. Isn't that a great name? And Tim said, that's the name of our band. I think um, there was a ballot, though, wasn't there? There was supposed there was to be, vote, but I'm which... not sure quite how it worked. I've heard the story that there was a bit ringed by Tim. <laughs> I, I think it probably was. But, uh, yeah. uh, so they've got the name, and you're, uh, you're drawn in, um, Peter. And I want to know, really, where the idea of folk rock started for this band do you know what i mean because you know was it right there from the outset was it something you talked about being folk rock or was it just something that grew as, as you were developing the band was it something that came with a particular person well martin got an electric guitar and and he he, he would say i'm going to wear chap tractor i'm going to wear earmuffs this is all too loud and he turned out to be the loudest guitarist ever <laughs> um but it, but he we sort of, they started using riffs uh, taken from the, the, uh, from the pipes, the way the pipes work in tunes a bit, wasn't it? And, um, and, and it sort of, I don't know if we, I don't know if the word folk rock was kind of quite there at the time. We, it, was, um, it was inevitable that it was going to happen. It was just a case of who'd get there first in a way. And obviously Fairport had done Legion Leap, but didn't want to continue in that direction. And uh, that was where we, we were at. You stepped in. Yeah, we yeah. thought that was what we wanted to do. So. Um, and Peter, were you experimenting with electric fiddle and with all the, uh, with the stuff that that allowed you to do? I don't know. I mean, I just, you know, my, my influence is really a bit of Irish music and classical music. I asked to join a band and I joined the band and, you know, I just did the best that I could. I mean, I, I remember when I left at one point and John Kirkpatrick um, came into the band and late, in later years I saw John <clears throat> and John, John said I had to play that line in Lark in the Morning, you know, well, 
that the line that I played in that song was a sort of classical line, really. It wasn't a folky line. I'm not really a folk musician. I'm a musician who absolutely loves folk music. I've played it for 40 years, and I've, uh, my job has been to accompany Maddie, really, you know, because I think if there's a song involved, that's the important thing, mm. you know, and don't get in the way of it, you know, um, and the song, the song's all, the all-important thing. I think, really, that the folk rock thing started when... Um, not actually started, I think it was starting with all those bands. There was, you know, Fother and Gay and Matthew Southern yeah. Comfort and Steeler and Fairport. And uh, it, was, it, it was those things where you can't say, well, this is how it happened. It was a developing time. There was a strong folk scene. And a lot of people didn't like what bands like... Fairport and Steel I were doing. Well, I was going I mean, to say about that because the purists in the folk clubs. Because I remember being in a, a you know a, a little folk band in Sheffield in the 70s. We had an electric bass player, and half the folk clubs wouldn't let us in. No, that's we had absolutely an electric right. Bass yeah, player. Yeah. Well, one so of the, when yeah, you guys were going yeah. where you were going, yeah. did you get a, a bit of abuse from? Well, people? I remember there was. Oh yeah, we had bottle tops. I did a gig in Germany once, and we had like <laughs> stuff thrown at us. But Frances Lyne, who worked for the BBC, she hosted... Control of Radio 2 at one time, yeah. That's yeah. right. And it was at Loughborough Folk Festival, I think, and there was a debate whether electric folk music was right or wrong. That's right, yeah, that's Not right. good or bad, <laughs> really? right or wrong. How, yeah. how did it go, or right. did you win? <laughs> you know. Well, yeah, I think, I think it was mostly that it wasn't a good idea at, at something like the Loughborough Festival, because it was a very traditional festival. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's... And what arguments did you make when those people came at you and said, look, you know, this is, I didn't. This is a bit of a... Oh, I spent so much without a drink. <laughs> I remember having a, a massive row with, with Peter Bellamy about uh, that it was too loud. And I said, earplugs, Peter. And, <laughs> and, of course, you can get ones that actually reduce the sound without, you know, now. I had some great but, rows with Peter Bellamy. Oh, Peter he was, was great he for was, that. He was great. He was brilliant. He used to stay with me when he was working down in the south of England. I lived in Hastings, you know. And uh, I had a fishing boat and all that. I used to go out fishing, used to drink with the fishermen, you know, and the whole life, you know. And, I said, you're not qualified to sing this song. I said, you're, you're singing sea shanties. You've never been to sea. I said, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> Get the purest yeah, argument yeah, in yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Hit him with his some, own baton. Some great times. Yeah, but that, great so I've, I've got to ask you about, you know, the, the 70s when, you, you know, you became pop stars. You know, yeah. Gaudete, <laughs> yeah. you know, this Renaissance carol or whatever it was in Latin. Gets you, on, gets you on top of the pops. Yes. You know, what do you remember about going on top of the pops, Maddie? Carrying a candle. <laughs> and, and, yeah, we all walked they, around with candles, We had to walk we? around with candles. We said, can't we just stand and sing it? Oh, no, no. Cloak no, and candles. We had to mime. And we wanted to sing. And then later on, they changed it all, and you had to sing. You know, yeah. and you couldn't... Yeah. So it there was, were musicians' union rules, weren't there, yeah, about oh, whether yeah, you sang or didn't sing? Changed all the time. All of that. And, uh, um, but yeah, no, it, it, it was great to be on top of the pops. I'm ever so glad I was on top of the pops. Do you remember who else was on? Do you remember who else was on at that time? I'm not sure it wasn't Slade, was it? But it would have been well, it Slade, wouldn't yeah. it? Or well, they always seemed to be on at that time. <laughs> yeah. um, but I'm just thinking about the young people who were brought in to dance during yeah, the top oh, yeah. of the pops. Yeah. And then suddenly you arrive with your candles. Yeah. How exactly. did it go down? Well, I don't, I don't know. I don't, nobody was bothered, really, because they were just there as dressing, really. They, they, they'd herd them into a corner. There were never many people there. It looked much fuller than it was. They'd herd them into a corner and they'd shoot across them. 
So it looked like there were loads of people. I mean, and, and what are your memories of it, Peter? Because you were back again with All Around My Hat. Oh, and they, you and Pete and Bob. Oh, yes. You were Wombles. We were Wombles. Yeah. Weren't you? And I think I'm right in saying <laughs> you were Uncle Bulgaria. No, no, Rick was Uncle I can't remember. Rick was Uncle, Rick was Uncle Barry. Was so this is because Mike, oh, yeah. we should explain for anybody who, yeah. who doesn't know the story, but Mike Batt produced the All Around My Hat album and was also the man behind the Wombles. Absolutely. So well, he tapped you on the shoulder one day and said, I'm going on top of the pops with the Wombles. Will well, you? no, we were in the studio and he said, look, it's really embarrassing. He said, all my Wombles are in America on tour. <laughs> he said, and, um, he said, I've, he said, I've run out of Wombles. <laughs> and, uh, he said, you, you wouldn't be on top of the pops. Well, yeah, OK, yeah. then, you know. <laughs> and uh, what they used to do was that because the Wombles outfits were so hot that all you could wear was your underpants, that was it. <laughs> and they stunk. These costumes were horrendous. So they used to have... Mike said they had a separate hotel room for the costumes. And <laughs> all, the, all the Wombles guys, you know, they'd... they'd, they'd They'd go off and get their breakfast and all that, right, time, you know, and they'd open the door. <laughs> and apparently they used to get really, the, the Wombles used to get, like, really fed up with the touring thing, you know, and, and Mike said he, he was there with them one day, you know, and there was, like, Uncle Bulgaria or whatever, you know, and this, you know, um, little American girl, you know, there's the Womble there in the square, you know, wherever it was, New York, you know. Hi, Uncle Bulgaria, piss off, you know. <laughs> 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 the Wombles got grumpy. Yeah. 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 Good times. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and the tours, you know, the tours were big, weren't they? The, the arenas that you were playing, you, were, you went on well, tour with Jethro Tull, I think, at one time, didn't oh, you? Oh, well, when we toured, first toured in America, we did, uh, went right across America in, in the stadiums, and we played five nights at the LA Forum, which was 17,000 people. Wow. And it was great. It was like doing a doing a residency so, yeah, you don't yeah. get that very often and what, it was, did it, what was it like but this is good yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder what it was like to be playing this traditional you know these traditional songs albeit arranged for a rock band you were know, playing repertoire that would have been very yeah, we strange to that audience yeah. in America that, you know, to, to, that, that came to see Jethro Tull well we it? opened with the lightweight dirge when we were in great you know tall costumes with ribbons and they, they totally freaked the Americans out because it looked a bit Ku Klux Klan, you see. So, and, uh, but it was the most... And we, we, were, we were lit from below, so these great shadows behind. It was bloody brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Did you enjoy it, Peter? Yeah, I mean, I look back on all the steel eye stuff, you know. I mean, what a great life I've had and still having, yeah. you know, in music. And it's... You know, the decisions are sort of made for you. You don't, yeah. you know, yeah. set 18, whatever I wore, 20-something, you know, say, like, yeah, OK, you know, like, all of this <laughs> stuff. And then things happen, you know. It needn't have been such a success, Steel Ice Band. Yeah. And the hits were sort of good news and bad news, really, because what happened then, instead of us sticking to the material that we did the best, which was taking traditional songs and arranging them. And, uh, you know, we start, all of us, myself included, yeah. we started writing material, either taking a traditional song and then trying to write a catchy chorus for it or something, or writing a song. And I'm not saying that they weren't well-crafted songs, but that little taste of, of the success thing, I, I, I think it took a few years to get rid of that. And it did take For a people while. to come back and go, hang on a minute, yeah. you know, this is... This band is really good. I mean, look at the musicians. But I wouldn't, I tell you what, I wouldn't have missed it. 
Well, I don't think I've laughed so much as we laughed It was in the, the laughing. Really? We just oh, never stopped laughing. And did you live the rock and roll yeah. lifestyle? Did you have the late night parties, throw the televisions out yeah. the window, all that sort yeah. of yeah. stuff? Well, you know, yeah, we get, did. Drive the yeah. Rolls Royce into the stuff. pool. Yeah, we yeah. did. Yeah? yeah? Oh, yeah. Nearly. Yeah. Not the Rolls Royce. Roll 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 we did it on the yeah. cheap. <laughs> <laughs> well, you drove a, what, a mini minor mini or something, minor. yeah. Just a little story for the rock and roll story. I think we had like two days off or something. I think the band was Gentle Giant. I can't remember. But they were all sitting around the pool and we're drinking and we're telling stories about us being ripped off and publishing and they're telling the same sort of stories you know and by the side of the pool was this fiberglass bather that's supposed to have been holding a surfboard but that had gone and he's all chipped and about 20 foot tall you know this big smiling american bather you know he had to go in the pool so you know we threw him in the pool all drunk and like little boys ran to our room you know anyway the next night i'm in the bar having a drink oh i got woke up by a crane <laughs> picking this bather up and putting it back on the pedestal. So I'm in the bath the next night, I'm having a drink, guy came up, hi, you know, Dad, are you having a good time and all that? Yeah, the, the, the manager of the hotel, I went, I'm so sorry about the bather. He said, no, that's all right. He said, uh, as soon as band's checking, he said, we order the crane. <laughs> it was just like, you know. That's fantastic. <laughs> So, so you, do, do you think that... I mean, obviously, the, I, I looked up the number of people who've been in Steel Ice Pan. I think it's 25. That's what I, I looked up on, on Wikipedia and I thought I counted that. There was a lot of comings and goings. Yeah, people was, came and... We've all been out and in and out and in. Yeah, yeah. and was that because you fell out with people or was it just because they got bored? No, we never or? fell out with anybody. Are you sure? No, we never... <laughs> <laughs> So there yeah, were, I mean, there it's were got, personality it gets, clashes. It gets quite stressful being in a band over any length of time, especially, especially through the 70s. That We should have just taken a year off. That's what you do now. But, that, but then the idea of taking a year off, the, the, they'd forget you. And it was like totally impossible idea, wasn't it? Nobody, it never came up that you would just stop for a bit. It was like you had to, this, you so were on, on this the thing, treadmill. you had to that's keep right, going. Yeah. And, and, and the alternative was to just split, which we did. Right. Um, because that was the only alternative. But so, it, was, it was, you know, and then, then, of course, when we'd had a couple of years to sort of settle down, we all went, oh. That's a bit, we bit missed that. Shame. I missed that. <laughs> yes. It was really good. No, because that's what's interesting about it, is, of course, you know, we're speaking as Steel Ice Span continues. Yes, you know, yes. And you're, you're still there. So <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder what, but you're the only one from the beginning, aren't you, yeah, who's still there? So yeah. I wonder what Steel Ice Span is. Is it an idea? Is it a set of repertoire? Is it... You know, what, what is Steel Ice Band that makes it kind of travel on, still keep going after all these years? And you, you brought it back together again at yeah. one time, didn't you, Peter? Well, sort of. I mean, it's, that is said of me, but it sort of wasn't like that, really. I mean, it was just everyone left, <laughs> you know. And, uh, you know, um, yeah, I did sort of try and hang on. And I did think about reforming it and thought about other singers when Maddie left. Gay Woods came in for a little while. Whatever went on in those early days, which I have no idea what it was between Tim Hart and Maddie and Terry and Gay Woods, something went on that yeah. caused resentment. And when Gay Woods came back into the band for a little while, um, that, that sort of started, uh, something started happening with that. And Maddie left and Gay Woods was there. 
Guy actually came in to split the band up again. That's why she came yeah, back into the band. She said it on her website. That, oh, really? Yeah, that was, that was her <laughs> that agenda. That was her intention. Oh, that was her agenda. So, and that was all to do with those early years. You know, that's, yeah. that's so that, what she... So that lasted yeah. for a long time, that yeah. resentment, obviously. Appar apparently. Yeah, yeah. apparently. But, but Mrs. Oblique. Yeah. Straight over my head. So when, it, when the band started falling to bits, I mean, Tim Harries, who's an extraordinary musician, one of my favourite musicians, I love him to death, and his playing is just outrageous for my ears and, and how he touches me with his playing. Uh, there was just him and me left at one point, and Tim said to me, <laughs> because Steel Ice Band without Maddie Pryor, it's not Steel Ice Band, it's as <laughs> simple as that. And um, Tim said, look, he said, I think I've got to leave as well. He said, otherwise Maddie won't come back. <laughs> so so um, there's another dynamic. So it was you, you on know. your own? Yeah. So well, then you rang dynamic. Maddie and said... We're starting up yeah, again. Well, I, I, spoke to, I spoke to John Dagnall, first of all, yeah, and he said, true. well, Maddie, Maddie's making some mumblings about whatever, and then it came back, and that's what should have happened. That's, yeah. that's, I think, that's I think the band is, it, for me, the material is, the, is, is what it's about. Um, and, and if you get the material, it, it's, it's, we had, it's, it, it, the blueprint was established through the 70s. And we've, we've done other things. We've gone off in cul-de-sacs and we've done this, that and the other. And every now and again you hear a song that really kind of works as, a, as our band uh, song. But it's, um, but it's the material for me. And, and, I, and it's material I love singing. And I, I just want to sing these songs because they're profound and interesting and uh, the best of them are utterly brilliant. And when you bring in a, a new younger musician, as you have done more recently, yeah. do they bring a new energy and a new yes. impetus to it and give you a different take on it? Well, and also, they, they've never heard it before, so it's like they sort of suddenly go, this is amazing. And like one of them said, uh, he, he, his friends sort of said, um, oh, that must be an, a really easy gig sort of thing. <laughs> and, and then he played in Weaver and the Factory Maid, and the bloke said, what the hell is that? You know, because what we do is, is, is not straightforward. It's never been straightforward. But it's, as I say, for me, it's the material. Without that material, there wouldn't, it wouldn't work. It, Steel Ice Band is that material for me. Those versions of those songs, very largely brought by Bob. You know, the big ballads. He did all that work on the big ballads. And, uh, and tunes from Pete. And I brought in some lyrical songs and Tim and all of them, and Rick as well, brought in songs, and that became what, how we played and how we approached songs, I think. And the audience really still wants to hear all those songs, you know, that's the thing you're getting. Yeah, your, your but not, they there. don't mind us bringing new stuff in, mm -hmm. you know, and we've done, we've done some really nice pieces, uh, you know, all, over the years. It's not just the early stuff that we do, but it is what people are familiar with, of course. I want to ask you something, and I'm very nervous about this because I read it on Wikipedia, so it might right. not be true. Okay. <laughs> but I, I did say that in, uh, in the 70s, you once did a concert where you threw pound notes at the audience. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah. So, so <laughs> £8,500, it said, yes, it was, it you was... dropped from the ceiling onto the audience. That was your idea, was it? No, it was not my idea. <laughs> no. It was Tony Secunda's idea. We had a very dodgy a, manager. manager. Very dodgy. And he had our, our, our a friend who was, uh, what was, he did the merch at that point, didn't he? Adrian. And he had, he had him up in the roof. And it must have been incredibly dodgy. I mean, I can't think yeah. it was very 
What, safe? Yeah, I can't think of a place in the roof roof with 8,500 quid in one pound notes. Yeah, I think he had to go up in his underpants so he couldn't take any with him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he did, yeah. And and then you dropped those on the audience. Presumably there was a bit of a scramble, was there? Yeah, and the thing was, I was stood on stage and I thought, well, there's not a lot pointing us being here. (laughs) (laughs) Because everybody was just... They'd lost your attention. (laughs) Completely lost their attention. Let's talk about some of the other uh, projects, as I I mentioned earlier. Um, We're going to talk about Stones Barn, and we're going to talk about Gig Spanner. I mean, Gig Spanner was what you did when you, when you left Steel Eye Span. What did you want that to give you that you couldn't get by being in Steel Eye Span? Uh, there was one song that... Uh, what, what had happened to me in the um, 80s, and it, it was when I'd left Steel Eye Span probably the first time, yeah. and uh, I was playing in a pub, and there was a, a chap called Trevor Watts, who's a saxophonist, very important musician in the world of improvised music. Um, heard me play and said, I've, I've been commissioned to write some music for Bracknell Jazz Festival. Uh, so I'm starting a 14-piece band, and I like the way you play, and I want you to be in it. So it, it, this was written, this was not improvised. Uh, it, it, was a, it was a band full of soloists, basically. But there were all the, this music, this particular music was called Moiré music. And the music was very complicated. It was melodies and bass lines that sounded as though they started on the one, but they didn't. They started somewhere else. And the piano player called Varian Weston was the, had the full score. Um, and, he was the, and the thing in that band was, where's the one? Because if you lost your place, you were really struggling. <laughs> Five Africans in the band, hugely complicated. Um, so I said to Trevor, I, I, you know, I went round to see him and I looked at the music. I said, I don't know if I can do this, you know. And it was some of the things were so simple. Uh, there was a there was a line. It was something like I think it went. And he said, I know you won't know how to play this properly, he said, but I've, I've given Panise, who's a beautiful black singer, she's dead, unfortunately, I, I loved her, and he said, I've given her the same line, because she is an African, you know, rhythm, and in rehearsals, Panisa was here, her face was, her trying to get me to play it how it should be played, and her beautiful, beautiful face was in front of me, and how she was doing it was she was breathing in on the offbeats. So she said, I'm, I'm looking at the notes, so I'm going, she's going, beautiful. So I then entered this world of music. Trevor is an incredible composer, but he's an improviser. And... I think the first time that we played together as an open improvisation, um, I knew that I was hooked. I knew that had to, um, I have to get emotional because I love music. I knew that would form the basis of my relationship with music and still does. And so now as a musician, loving classical music, loving folk music, loving the fact that I had to ask myself the question, what is music? You know, we have all this music, all the different styles of music, but the bottom line is, I'm a living organism on the planet, 
and I have chosen to express something through a sound source. What do I want to express and how do I express it? How do I build up a vocabulary that's not folk, country, duh, jazz, da 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 da? So now I'm in this beautiful place where I love things feeding in subliminally and have the freedom to do that. So, big changing point in my life. In Steeli, going back to the question that you asked, um, I think some of the band members, certainly Bob and Nigel, were very intimidated when I got involved with improvisation. Uh, I was trying to feed a bit into Steeli. Maddie Blesser, we did a few bits and pieces. The one that survived was Betsy Bell and Mary Gray, mm -hmm. that I have a rummage in the middle um, and whatever. But I remember one day, a little... Have I got time to tell you a little story? I don't yes. Talk, talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were on tour, and Matt, you'll remember this, and a quick half in the pub, and Rick, it was Rick, Maddie and myself, we were on tour half an hour before the gig, and Maddie's sitting there. I went, you're right, Maddie. And she went, I'm just fed up with singing these same fucking songs. <laughs> like that. And because Maddie has said to me, and now that I'm doing more singing, which I didn't do a lot in Steeli, but now I'm doing a bit more singing, you have to believe in what you're singing, otherwise yeah, yeah. it's empty. Yeah. It's the same as playing an instrument. You've got to load it with everything that you are, otherwise it's an empty noise. It's meaningless. Whether it's harmonious or whatever, it's still meaningless unless you load it with, with the right stuff. So I said, OK, in an ideal world, what would you want to sing? It wasn't when I was on horseback. It was... Um, can't remember. So yeah. I go back in, there's Bob and Nigel sitting there. I said, oh, we're going to do um, whatever it was. Nigel puts his sticks down. Bob gives me a lecture about those people who paid good money to hear proper <laughs> things and all this sort of stuff. So the three of us went out and did it. They refused to do it. Maddie's mum was in the audience and it was the best thing of the night because it was musicians reacting honestly to, to making music. On their metal. Absolutely, know, yeah. absolutely. And we did it for two more nights and then Bob and Nigel thought, oh, well, we better join in. Then it, then it became an arrangement and it was buggered again. Yeah. That's why... <laughs> that's, that's why... You know, you ask any of the mu these lovely musicians here that, that are here, the first time that you play something, whether you're writing a song or a tune or whatever, that first time is the best. Yeah, After that, it can become a good performance. Yeah. And that's why, for me, improvising, that door has to stay open. And all the young musicians that would hear me play or something go, bloody hell, you know, that's, it's like, like, yeah, I do it deliberately. Perhaps that I, can't, I, want, I don't want to do anything else. That door has to stay open for the big picture of music. Not the little picture of I like this and I don't like that and all the, this silly nonsense. Mm -hmm. You know, the big picture. Keep the world of music developing, very important. It's interesting, Maddie, isn't it? So, obviously, you've had loads of projects outside yeah. Steel Eyes Band, the Carnival Band that you work with and with right. June Tabor and the Silly Sisters and so on. Were the things that you were looking for outside Steel Eye that allowed you to do different things with your voice, allowed you to do different repertoire and that kind of thing? Yeah. Were, were the things that you felt the sense of freedom going outside Steel Eye Span? Well, it, it's just different. Um, and I think that's one of the things, is, is you just do something different. In any situation you're in, uh, with a group of musicians, you'll, make, you'll do one thing, you know, generally, you'll do a sort of thing in that area 
And then, like Steli, is very specific to me. It's a very specific repertoire and thing. And but then, working with June, the first time we ever sang together was down here in the downstairs, and uh, we sang Bulgarian music. And uh, um, Archie Fisher said the overtones were deaf and a dog, and <laughs> that was that was what we set off with. We because I wanted to do something a different kind of uh, harmony, mm-hmm. uh, and we and and in fact our that. The, all the music that I did with June was sort of in, uh, um, informed by that kind of sound, where with seconds and where it's quite clash. Uh, we like that, um, and so sort of. Uh, and the different things I've done, they've been for different, different reasons. The, the, the carnival band is is brilliant. They're very skilled musicians, and singing a lot of carols, which are beautiful songs, and very, very like folk music in a way, in that they're very, un, um, what's the word, they're, they're, they are just what they are, they're not trying to be anything more, they're just beautiful tunes, like that album you did with, with Squeezy, I think that's got that quality, um, and, and of course working with Nick and Troy, that was when I went into doing some more sort of written pieces and dra- drama, we did um, Ravens when I had some wings. That was really good. Um, and your yeah. dancing, of course, we, you know, we all, that was a, a huge feature of, of Steel Eye. Was that just because you couldn't keep still? I think it was because I ran off the adrenaline, actually. But a lot of it, I, I, got, I was incredibly nervous. So I would, I would run at the end of the gig, quite often up to the gods. And, and it ran off the adrenaline. I think it saved me, really, just doing that running about. Um, but, it, but the dancing was, I, I, I still find that music makes me move. Uh, and if it doesn't make me move, it's not what I want to do. So I do, but as, what is it that, the feet that were nimble tread carefully now, as gentle a measure as age do allow, is kind of where I'm at now. <laughs> and, and I came to visit you in, in Cumbria, where you have this wonderful place. I mean, just tell everybody what Stones Barn is like, first yeah, of all, because well, it's there in the middle of nowhere. Middle, in the middle of, of nowhere, the it really is. Um, and it's a, it's a beautiful uh, area and it is the least populated area in the least populated county in England so it's there's a few sheep aren't there? there's a lot of sheep yeah. um, and and we have a we, we we have a barn and we have some a bit of accommodation and people come and do singing we have singing for the uncertain which is uh, popular because a lot of people I mean, in the sense that I was told I could sing and therefore had no trouble with it a lot of people have been told they can't sing and they take that on board very young. If you're told very young, you will sort of just go, oh, well, that's it, that's it. And then you tell everybody, and they tell you, and you go on, and it becomes the family joke. And uh, it's very hard to break that because the, the, the constrictor muscles, that when you're nervous and highly uh, worried by something and, and uncertain, the constrictor muscles will make that a, a, a reality, that you won't be able to sing. So it's... You kind of have, so, so we get into groups with lots of people who can't sing, and they suddenly discover they can. Mm-hmm. And you work with your daughter, Rose Ellen. Oh, Rose, yes, Rose Ellen is brilliant. So she's, she's a, yeah. a vocal coach? Yes, yeah, she's a vocal coach, and she, she, but she's a brilliant singer as well. Mm-hmm. She, can, uh, she can do all the different, because she's a heavy rock singer, is a, a kind of chosen thing, or doom drone sometimes. So that she, she knows all about um, distortion and the, the other things that vocalists do in those different genres 
she kind of understands Does it give you great pleasure to pass on your joy in singing to, to other people? Oh, absolutely. I love teaching people to sing. And when they get those light bulb moments, it's just brilliant. And Peter, we spent time together when you were rehearsing your current tour, I think. You're still on it, aren't you? The Salt Lines tour, which is a collaboration with Raina Wynne, who wrote an amazing book called The Salt Path. Uh, and I don't know if anybody's read it, but it's a, it's a story about um, how she and her husband become homeless just at the time when he uh, contracts a neurodegenerative disease. He's diagnosed with this disease. They have no money, uh, they have nowhere to live, and they set off to walk the 630 miles of the southwest coast path. And it's the most bizarre and unlikely undertaking, but it's a redemptive story. It's a story of the triumph of humanity over this adversity. And Peter and the gig span a big band with, the, with um, Hannah Martin, Philip Henry, and John Spires, and, uh, all joined up with, with Raina to make a new show about the Southwest Coast Path. Tell us how, how that went. I mean, tell us how, how that process was of, of, of working with Raina and and the band together. Well, it was lovely. Um, we were in France. Uh, Becky from Folkies Festival had sent my wife Deborah the book, and Deborah read the book, and she thought, wouldn't it be lovely for uh, a collaboration with Ray? Um, we find songs that are to do with the southwest coast path, and uh, Ray can read some words or whatever, but Deborah thought she might not even reply, but it turns out that she was following Gig Spanner and the Edgelarks anyway on the Twittery thing or whatever it is. Squeezy John knows all about Twitter. I don't know anything about it. <laughs> he's, uh, he's, 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 he's the master. Um, and she jumped at it. Um, and what was even more fantastic is that she's written uh, new words for this, for this project. And we've toured it, we've recorded it, um, we've just finished mixing the album. I think it's all gone to the... So she reads the words over, the, over your music? Yeah, um, well, she actually she... says them. She's learnt them. She's quite extraordinary. And she's quite shy, too. So it's, um, yeah, it's words and music. Um, and it's quite extraordinary what's happened, actually, because we had no idea how it would be received. We did it, and it was completely honourable and full of integrity and done for the right reasons. It wasn't, oh, this could be successful. But the reaction has been quite extraordinary, and we're chuffed to bits with that. It, it was a total surprise. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's, that's... I think you took it to the Minac Theatre, didn't you? Did you, did you go there? We did, yeah. Well, that's, you know, this, which is the theatre on the cliffs in Cornwall. Yeah. I mean, that must have been quite a night. It was fantastic, and we sold it out, too. I mean, that's really good news. Yeah. So, so I, I, I suppose as a closing question, I should just ask, as you reflect back on a life in, in music, um, what, what are you most happy about? Is it, is it what you're doing now? Is it something in the past? You know, what, what, what gives you the most joy as, of, of the life that you've spent in music, Maddie? Um, I think I've always wanted to do a good body of work, and that's... Uh, and long, as long as it continues, but uh, you know that's what I've been interested Tick. in. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've I've enjoyed uh, all of it that I've done. Some some of it you enjoy more than others. I mean, it's kind of inevitable. Uh, but we we it was a democratic band, very largely Steel Eyes. So everybody brought in their own, and still does bring in ideas and ways to approach songs, and. 
And so, so it's never entirely about you, it's about the material. And, and as I say, as far as I'm concerned, it's a good body of work as well. And it's quite a big one, I realise. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Peter? Well, um, I'm not one for looking back. Um, I'm hugely um, honoured to have been in Steely for that amount of time. And we had such a great time um, and really produced some really good music. Some of it went by the wayside. Some of it never even reached the stage, some of those rehearsals, mm. you know. Um, I tend to look forward. You know, if people ask me, what's your favourite album that you've made? I always say the next one. <laughs> because I don't listen to anything, anything that I've done uh, unless it's reference unless I have to think. Like, for instance, when, you know, we were just going to have a chat here and I phoned Maddie and I phoned Squeezy and I was in France and I said to Maddie, you know, I mean, we don't know how long we're going to keep going for. Do you fancy doing a couple of songs or a song or whatever? Maddie went, yeah, let's give it a whirl, you know. Um, lovely. So, but now that's gone yeah. and I'm just waiting for Maddie to phone me and say, do you want to come back to Steela so I can say no? <laughs> <laughs> we don't pay to see that. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please say thank you to Maddie Pryor and Peter Nye.